Looking forward to Mars sample return this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The international effort to collect and return material from the Red Planet is ramping up. This week, Minakshi Wadwa, Principal Scientist for Mars Sample Return at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, joins us to share the exciting updates to the plan. You may have also noticed the dazzling light of Venus and Jupiter in the recent night sky. Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, will pop in for What's Up to tell us more. This week, members of the Planetary Society's communications and space policy and advocacy teams gathered for a retreat at our headquarters in Pasadena, California. We have a lot of exciting upcoming projects to share with you all in the future. But the additional work and bonding this week meant that our team didn't have time to prepare our usual space mission briefings. I promise that we'll be back to our regularly scheduled updates from the world of space news in next week's show. As always, you can learn more about what's going on in space in the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. Humans have been exploring Mars with robotic spacecraft since the 1960s. In that time, we've learned a lot about the Red Planet and its history. We've discovered that liquid water existed on the surface in the past. The planet once had a warm, wet environment that could have supported life as we know it. But there are so many mysteries that we've yet to solve. How did the planet change over time? What was the atmosphere like? How long did its oceans last? And did life once exist on Mars? The answers to these questions are captured in the Martian rocks, the soil, the terrain. Each grain of dust carries a thousand untold stories as they blow across the desolation of what was once a world so much like our own. Humans have done an amazing job of piecing together the mysteries of Mars from afar. But despite our advances in space technology, There are some questions we just can't answer without bringing bits of the red planet home to our pale blue dot. Just one rock from Mars in an Earth-based laboratory could revolutionize our understanding of that world and our place in space. Mars Sample Return is the next step in that journey. It's a series of missions by NASA and the European Space Agency to return samples from the Martian surface to Earth. If everything goes according to plan, we'll have the first samples from another planet by the early 2030s. The Perseverance rover, which is already on Mars, has been gathering precious samples in preparation. Our guest this week is Dr. Manakshi Wadwa, called Minnie by those who know her. She's a planetary scientist and isotope geochemist who's now the principal scientist for Mars Sample Return at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She's also the school director and foundation professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. During her time at ASU, she served as the director of the Center for Meteorite Studies for over a decade. She studies Martian meteorites to learn more about what bits of Mars can tell us about its history and about our solar system's formation. She's here to give us an update on the Mars sample return mission, what I consider to be one of the most exciting upcoming missions of our lifetimes. Hi, Minnie. Thanks so much for joining me on Planetary Radio. Great to be here. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Humans have been studying Mars from afar for generations, but we are so close to finally actually having samples of Mars here on Earth. And as a geologist and someone that's working on this Mars sample return mission, 
That's got to be so exciting for you. It is just incredibly exciting. I started my graduate career studying Mars meteorites. When I first actually found out that there were meteorites from Mars, that there were actual samples that we thought might be from Mars, I mean, that just blew my mind. I mean, I, I just thought, oh my God, here I am. I'm a geologist. I'm vicariously able to be a geologist on Mars. <laughs> but I soon realized that meteorites, they're useful in terms of understanding some things about Mars, these meteorites from Mars. But there's some things about these rocks that we don't understand the geologic context, where they came from on Mars. They are certainly not representative of the the planet as a whole. They're of kind of a, a very small subset of the kinds of rocks that are hard enough to be ejected from the surface of the planet. They really don't record the full geologic history of the planet by any means. And they've been weathered sitting here on Earth. They've been weathered and contaminated and altered. And so I thought at the time, hey, wouldn't it be just wonderful to actually be able to go to Mars and collect samples and bring them back. <laughs> I, I won't say how long ago that was, but that was a long, long time ago. And I've been, you know, dreaming of Mars sample return since then. It's always been 10 years on the horizon, but this is as real as I've ever felt that it was going to be, that it's going to happen. We're already collecting samples. Perseverance is already collecting samples on Mars and We've already established a depot, a first depot of samples that we have deemed scientifically return worthy. Yeah, so it's, it's super exciting. As you said before, there's a difference between what we can learn from meteorites because we can't really localize them where they came from on Mars. So what is it about these new Mars sample return samples that will teach us different things about Mars that we couldn't determine from these meteorites? So for one thing, the Mars meteorites that we have in our collection, they are all what we call igneous rocks. So what that means is that they solidified from magma. And those are the kinds of rocks that are hard enough to survive the kind of process that it takes to eject and then transport these rocks from Mars to Earth. What we don't have in these Mars meteorites are sedimentary rocks. And the sedimentary materials, these are water lane rocks. And we find them all over the earth, of course, and they've been deposited by, you know, rivers and in the ocean. And there's uh, a lot to be learned about the past history of Mars, especially uh, the history of water on Mars from studying sedimentary rocks. And, and that's actually really been one of the key types of materials that uh, Perseverance has been after. The whole point of going to Jezero Crater was to be able to look for these kinds of sedimentary materials that were deposited possibly by uh, a lake that might have been present within the crater at some point in the past. Uh, there's also a river delta in the area where Perseverance uh, has been collecting samples. And so some of the deltaic sediments would be really interesting. And so those are the kinds of materials that Perseverance has been collecting. We've also, of course, collected some igneous rocks from the crater bottom, Jezero crater bottom, uh, we'd actually expected to find all sedimentary rocks, but it was actually serendipitous that we found that the crater floor is actually made up of igneous rocks. So we've got a diversity of rock types in the Perseverance collection. Also some minerals that were you know, created in these igneous rocks as a result of interaction with water. And so we've got some really, really interesting materials that are not represented in Martian meteorites. And of course, I mean, the hope is that these rocks that are collected by Perseverance are going to be 
really clean, pristine in terms of not being contaminated by Earth uh, environment. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it, it's going to tell us a lot more about the history of Mars and, and certainly things that we can't really hope to learn from meteorites. Yeah. Perseverance has been kind of adventuring in Jezero Crater for two years. In fact, this episode will be airing just a few days after the second anniversary of its landing on Mars, which is fantastic. Yes. And the images that we're getting back of these sedimentary layers in that river delta have been, frankly, mind-blowing. The first time I saw it, that looks just like the sediments that we see here on Earth. I wish that we had the opportunity to bring back every single sample that Perseverance collects, but how are we making the decision between which samples to return and what happens to the ones that we leave back on Mars? As you know, we just established a depot on the surface of Mars, and that depot has 10 sample tubes. And so the plan for Perseverance, while it was exploring Jezero Crater and the rocks within Jezero, was to actually collect for every rock that was sampled to collect a pair of samples. And the goal there was to basically have one sample that we would deposit in this depot and have another one of a pair uh, on board Perseverance to take beyond the crater. And so Perseverance in total has 43 sample tubes, five of which are witness tubes. So those tubes are useful for characterizing some of the rover-generated contamination, for example. But there are, in addition to these five witness tubes, there are 38 sample tubes. And so of those 38 tubes, the goal was to collect a pair of uh, samples from each rock within the crater. And then after we established the depot, at that point, then we would start basically, the plan is to start collecting single samples. At this point, in the depot that we located within Jezero Crater at the Three Forks region, we've got a stash of 10 tubes, of which one is a witness. And one of them is actually an atmosphere sample. And so there are eight rock samples that are in that depot. And all eight of those actually have a pair that's on board Perseverance already. And so this little depot that we have, it's an insurance policy. It really is kind of a, a backup just in case something happens because Perseverance is supposed to be the prime delivery pathway for us to deposit the samples that are being carried on it to bring it to the lander that's going to then uh, launch these samples into orbit and then eventually to the Earth. At the moment, we've got the pairs of those eight samples that are on board and then the rest of the tubes. And so in total, we're going to have maybe one or two extra tubes than the slots that are available to carry the samples back. So the sample canister that's going to be coming back has 30 slots in it. And so uh, we're going to have maybe a couple of extra tubes in case something happens or we're not able to collect a sample. So just in, for contingency sake, you know, we've, we've got a couple extra. Yeah, I mean, we may have to make a decision about <laughs> which one or two tubes to not sort of bring back, but that's going to happen probably in a few years time and we'll have some time to think about it. And so we'll have a great, you know, beautiful set of, of samples to bring back that'll represent the diversity of materials from all of the exploration area that, that Perseverance will have been to. This brings up an interesting topic, which is that last year there was an announcement that there were some changes to the Mars Sample Return mission. The primary idea is that they want Perseverance to bring the samples back to the Mars Ascent vehicle. But in the event that that doesn't work, there are two helicopters that are coming along for the journey. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, that's been an exciting development. 
The original architecture, when we first started thinking about Mars Sample Return, had been to bring along a sample fetch rover that would help to collect the samples that would have been deposited by Perseverance on the ground and then bring them to the sample retrieval lander or the, the Mars Ascent vehicle on the sample retrieval lander. As a result of sort of refining the architecture and also because Ingenuity has been performing so well on Mars, over 40 flights at this point, and, and it's really going strong. And so we realized that we had the option to actually use helicopters as a backup option. The other thing that we found out is that we expect Perseverance to be healthy and be able to do the job when we need to deliver the samples to the lander. And so an estimations of Perseverance's lifetime and performance we were able to refine those as well and basically confirm that perseverance is likely to be healthy enough to be able to, to do the job. And so, so the architecture has been refined now and uh, perseverance is the main delivery pathway. And the exciting thing, of course, is that, yeah, we do have these two helicopters that we are going to bring along. Uh, they're going to be very similar to Ingenuity. So there's going to be a lot of you know, heritage that is associated with this experience that we have, this very successful experience that we have with Ingenuity. And the couple of things that'll be different about these helicopters, one is that they're going to need to be able to grapple or, you know, grip a sample tube. And then the other is to have a little bit of mobility. So some wheels that are going to allow them to position themselves over a sample tube, for example, to grip it and bring it to the lander. These changes to the mission have been so exciting that we wrote an article on this subject just a few months ago. So I'll link that underneath all the other information on the page for this episode at planetary.org slash radio for anyone who wants to learn more of the details. But getting all this gear to Mars in order to accomplish the sample return is going to take more than one launch. So can you give us any updates on the latest launch dates for the Earth return orbiter and the sample return vehicle? Yes. So the current plan is for the set of launches to be no sooner than 2027. Basically, at the present time, we are expecting that we would launch the Earth Return Orbiter in 2027, and then the sample retrieval lander would depart or be launched in 2028. Mm. So that's, that's our current plan. And so we're proceeding with that assumption. When does that mean that we're actually going to get the samples back here on Earth? Yes. Yeah, so that means we'll have the samples back uh, 2033. That's so exciting. That's less than a decade away. <laughs> I know. I, I know. It's just, uh, it, yeah, it, it's, it's really kind of, it's really exciting for me to think about that because I've been really dreaming about this moment for, for such a long time. And this actually feels real at this point because things are happening. Wheels are in motion and we are collecting rocks on the surface of Mars and we're, we're going to bring them back. These samples are going to tell us a lot about the history of Mars, but one of the ultimate goals for this project and one of the primary reasons why we landed Perseverance in Jezero Crater is because we want to learn more about the watery history of Mars and potentially, uh, potentially its habitability. So if we do go through these samples, what are some clues that might actually hint toward the watery history of Mars or specifically life on Mars? We already know from previous missions, the rover missions that have been there, Mars Science Laboratory and, and even you know, Spirit and Opportunity and all, all of the missions before that, that there is evidence of liquid water on the surface of Mars. There's obviously um, you know, a lot that we've learned from these previous missions, but 
At this point, the goal of bringing the samples back is to really assess in a very thorough manner whether there's evidence of ancient life in these rocks. So we know that there was water, but was that environment, the water-rich environment that we're looking at, in which some of these sedimentary rocks were deposited, was it capable of actually supporting life in the past? One of the things that sort of I also want to make clear is that the current environment on Mars and the conditions, especially near the surface, are such that we don't expect that there will be any you know, extant life. What we're looking for is, is evidence of ancient life. And so basically, I think we'll be able to perform, we'll be able to bring to bear the full arsenal of state-of-the-art technologies and techniques that are present in Earth-based laboratories to studying these rocks. We'll be able to study these samples in these synchrotrons, very, very high resolution, and be able to image the samples at very, very high resolution at you know nanometer scale or less. And, and so we'll be able to see if maybe there's things that look like potentially fossilized materials in there. And so, yeah, the, the hope is to be able to really study these samples potentially at the atomic scale, and be able to learn a lot about past habitability and past conditions on the surface of Mars and how Mars evolved as a planet. Yeah, that would be the jackpot right there. If we could find fossilized bacteria or something in these samples, that would be amazing. Will you be personally involved in actually investigating some of these samples when they return to Earth? I sure hope so. <laughs> I, You know, I've, uh, I've really kind of obviously spent much of my career studying, you know, Mars from the perspective of these Mars meteorites and to have some actual samples back. Uh, I would love to actually be able to analyze some in my laboratory. I'm, I'm hoping for that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. This is a super exciting time to be someone just starting out, going to school and, and learning about these things. The world's going to be a much different place, you know, 10, 20 years from now. And, and so much is going to be happening. I think there'll be so, so many great opportunities to be part of this sort of exciting space exploration and planetary exploration. I think just follow your dreams. <laughs> These are the moments I dreamed of when I was a child, and I'm so excited for everyone that gets to be a part of this in the future. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Minnie. And I can't tell you how excited I am about this mission. And all of us here at the Planetary Society, we really want to wish you and everyone on your team good luck as you undertake this because this might be one of the coolest missions in the history of space exploration. <laughs> I I absolutely believe that. <laughs> so, uh, not that I'm biased or anything, <laughs> but yes, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been great talking to you. To say that I'm looking forward to Mars sample return would be an astronomical understatement. I cannot wait to learn more. And I'm so excited for people like Minnie who've dedicated their lives to helping humanity solve the mysteries of Mars. I imagine that one day I'll see an image come through my social media feed of Minnie in a clean room with Mars rocks, living out her dreams as a Martian geologist. You can hear the extended version of my interview with Minakshi Wadwa, Principal Scientist for Mars Sample Return at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up after this short break. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called 
the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. There is so much going on in space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Sarah. So, what's up, Bruce? All sorts of hunky-dory swell, keen, peachy stuff. That sounds very nice and lovely. I would like to hear about that. (laughs) So, Venus now just dominating over in the West after sunset, looking super, super bright. Right when this show comes out on February 22nd, it'll be hanging out next to the crescent moon. Then the moon, over the next five or so days, will migrate up across the sky and end up next to Mars on February 27th. And Jupiter's above Venus, but it's closing in on it. So March 1st, Jupiter and Venus, the two brightest planets in the night sky, brighter than the brightest star in the night sky, will hit each other and explode! No, no. But they will get very close to each other as seen in the sky, about the equivalent of one moon diameter apart, about half a degree. And uh, it will look cool over in the west. That's March 1st. You can watch them grow closer to each other over the next few days and then grow apart after that. Yeah, a bunch of our Planetary Society coworkers were walking to dinner the other night, looked up in the sky, and the two shiniest dots in the sky, clearly Venus and Jupiter, but... We had to think for a second which one was which, and clearly Venus was the shinier one. It is. It's so shiny. If you catch the two and you're confused about the two shiny dots, go with Venus. (laughs) That's the shinier one. Shiny. All right, let us move on to this week in space history. We start with a dark note, but a remembrance, which is 1966. The Gemini 9 prime crew of Elliot C. and Charles Bassett crashed in their T-38 and were killed. So they switched to a different crew, so we remember them. On a much happier note, 2007, New Horizons headed out to Pluto, thought, hey, I will stop by Jupiter, or at least fly by really, really fast and get some really cool data. So this week, 2007, New Horizons flew past Jupiter, and a few years later would go past Pluto. Those New Horizons images to this day are just absolutely bonkers. I, I I still sometimes look at that picture of Pluto and just think about how much effort it took that we got there and how beautiful those pictures are. I can't say it enough. If you haven't seen these pictures of Pluto, please look them up. It's worth it. Yeah, the whole Pluto system, quite awesome. Like pretty much everywhere we go, more complicated than we ever imagined. Vastly more complicated than I thought it would be, for sure. Speaking of complicated, we move on to... I didn't know where that one was going. It was kind of a surprise for me, too. So I work pretty hard trying to not repeat random space facts in over 20 years, and I did it for years before that. It's tricky. So I'm I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because I'm kind of combining two, and but I just think it's so cool. I'm going to give a combined two that in the distant past I've used. So we just had the Super Bowl for those paying attention to American football. At the start of the game, they, of course, do the coin flip. If our solar system out to Neptune 
is the size of that coin sitting there on the field. The nearest star system, Alpha Centauri, would be about four football fields away. But wait, don't order yet. The Milky Way galaxy at this scale, you're four football fields away at Alpha Centauri. The entire Milky Way galaxy at this scale would be bigger than North America. That definitely puts it into context, but it's also funny. It speaks to the American need to turn everything into football fields for context comparison. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I figure a football field with American football is about the same length as a soccer field known as football elsewhere. I'm turning it into football fields, but it's more of a generic uh, football field. That was way too much explanation. All right, we move on to the trivia contest, and we asked you, about the wonderful picture, what astronaut included his two rescue dogs in his official NASA photo? How'd we do? And do we have any fun stories? We got a lot of answers on this one because obviously it involves puppies and everybody loves dogs. So people wanted to respond to this one. And across the board, everyone agrees that this is the best astronaut photo. So I hope other astronauts bring dogs or cats into their photos. But the answer is Leland Melvin. He's not only an astronaut, but a dog rescue advocate. So in 2008, when he was selected to be on a space shuttle mission, it was a perfect time to take a new astronaut photo. And people are allowed to bring some family members in there, but he wanted to bring his four-legged family members with him. So he brought two rescue dogs, his dogs, Jake and Scout at the time. And I'm going to put a copy of this picture on the page for this Planetary Radio episode at planetary.org slash radio. So you can see how cute this is because these dogs are so adorable. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's adorable. It's always really good. And my impression was there was some sneaking involved in getting them onto JSC, but uh, I'm not. I've not... heard rumors that it was sneaky, sneaky, but it would be really fun to bring him on the show sometime and ask him about his caper with pups. How do you get dogs? dogs into your astronaut photo. You know, not because I want to know or anything. <laughs> but our winner this week is Ayrton Yuzak from Phoenix, Arizona, USA. And Ayrton, you've just won a good night Oppie 12-ounce thermal bug. So we will send that to you. And we did. We got some really cute dog stories and things like that. But, uh, you know, just across the board, everyone says it is the official best astronaut photo of all time. And I like this one, too, because it does. It pertains to football. Daniel Culp from Fort Walton Beach, Florida, wanted us to let everyone know that Leland Melvin was also a football player prior to becoming an astronaut. Yeah. And he said, basically, he was a receiver who took going deep to a next level. Ah! ah! <laughs> <laughs> Leland, go deep. No, man, not that deep. Switching gears. Mars missions is the topic. Mars was a tricky little bugger back in the day. How many missions to Mars were tried but failed for any reason before Mariner 4 was the first successful mission at Mars? How many failed missions were attempted to Mars before Mariner 4 succeeded? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until Wednesday, March 1st at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. And remember... Space is hard, so there's probably quite a number of these. <laughs> but uh, whoever wins this is going to be receiving another Goodnight Oppie 12-ounce thermal mug. I know several people really, really wanted this as the prize, so here's your second chance to get one. And for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure of watching the Goodnight Oppie documentary, it's on Amazon Prime Video, and it's all about the Opportunity Rover. And if you love Mars or you need a moment to feel inspired or just need a good ugly cry about robots on another planet... 
I really recommend this one. It was adorable. <laughs> Everybody go out there, look up the night sky and, and think about tears falling in popcorn. Thank you. And I'm sorry. Good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week to tell you more about the Canadian Space Agency's upcoming lunar rover. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our stellar members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, add Astra. Astra.